0: Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. In today's episode, Tamir Kuran, Professor of Economics and King Faisal, Professor of Islamic Thought and Culture at the University of Southern California, joins Dr. Douglas North, Professor of Economics at Washington University and 1993 Nobel Prize winner in Economics to discuss institutions and economic performance in this week's Free to Choose Media Podcast. Doug, it's a delight to be here this morning to uh, uh, talk to you. As you know, I have uh, long been interested in the sources of economic failure, in the mechanisms, particularly the social mechanisms that cause economic failures to uh, persist, and in the mechanisms that uh, lead to reform, even uh, uh, revolution. Over the years that I've been studying these uh, uh, questions, Uh, I've been uh, uh, profoundly influenced by uh, your own uh, works. I uh, learned from your uh, book, uh, Structure and Change in Economic History, that you wrote uh, in the, published in the early uh, 80s, that transaction costs uh, uh, play a a very important determinant of uh, economic success and economic uh, failure. You explained in that book that uh, uh, many institutions arise uh, to uh, reduce transactions costs, that is, the costs of uh, doing uh, a business. Many others have made uh, this point as well, but in my mind, you stand out from the majority of the economists who make this position in that you recognize that uh, institutions not only solve these transaction cost minimization uh, problems well, uh, but also in some cases do it very uh, poorly. You recognize the existence of institutional successes as well as institutional uh, uh, failures. In the hands of uh, many other economists, this uh, insight has turned into a tautology, into a search for some explanation uh, to explain every institution, every observed institution as uh, efficient. The last time I made this point in class and uh, in fact it was a few weeks ago I'm teaching uh, my course on the political economy of institutions uh, this uh, uh, semester uh, and I contrasted you with uh, some other uh, economists who were uh, we were whose works we were uh, discussing a student uh, put up her hand and she said uh, no I'm puzzled about something Uh, How does Doug North distinguish between uh, an efficient institution and an inefficient institution? Of course, I gave her an answer, but I also wished at that time that uh, you were there in the classroom so that I could have turned over uh, the the floor to you. So let me ask you uh, uh, this uh, question. How do you distinguish between uh, a good institution and a bad institution, economic
1: failure and economic success? Well, next time you have a student like that, call me and I'll show up in your class, uh, Timur, and uh, we can take it from there. Well, I ought to step back, really, because uh, it took me a long time to get to this position. I I started out uh, as a good neoclassical economist, and indeed the whole development in economic history of what we call cleometrics was the application of neoclassical economic theory to history, and this uh, got us a long ways. Uh, but it left a big puzzle, particularly when I moved from being an American economic historian to a European economic historian, and I tried to use the same kind of tools. They didn't make much sense, and they didn't make much sense because obviously, when you look back enough in history, when you go to European economic history, you have long periods when economies and societies don't evolve, don't work, they stagnate, and you have other times when you get development. In fact, the great question we ask is, How did the rise of the Western world occur? And the rise of the Western world presumably implied that somewhere along the line, you evolved a set of rules of the game, that's institutions, Mm -hmm. uh, that led you to to have development in the sense that we measure development. Uh, And that was a puzzle, uh, because neoclassical theory always assumed that you had an efficient world, efficient markets, and implicitly imperfect information. Well, as soon as you start to get around to look at institutions analytically, and I had to start doing that, it was quite clear that people operate on the basis of imperfect knowledge. Uh, They operate on the basis of beliefs that have evolved. And this doesn't necessarily produce uh, institutions that are going to lead to you to be more productive and more creative, which is the heart of what we think of as economic development. Uh, And so uh, then I had to start to figure out what what there is about it. This is a long lead-up, you understand, to your question because really what you mean, I think, by efficient institutions is you have institutions that have low costs of transacting. You used the word yourself in the opening part. By transaction costs, we mean the costs of running an economic system. That's Ken Arrow's definition, and I like it. Uh, And presumably, the lower the costs of people to make exchanges and do things, then the less resources you have to use in that, and therefore, the, the more likely you are to be able to realize potential. And indeed, there's a big trade-off between lower transaction costs encouraging lower production costs, which are the other half of the cost uh, picture. And so what we have, therefore, when we have efficient institutions, mm-hmm. is there are institutions that enable us to make exchanges at a lower and lower costs of, of, of making the exchanges. Uh, would that have satisfied your student? I
0: think so, I think she would have gone on to ask for some uh, examples and uh, I gave her an example which I think fits uh, in with uh, the answer that you've just uh, uh, given. Uh, This had to do with the medieval Mediterranean world where you had uh, a number of different legal systems that were uh, available for uh, merchants to uh, use. Uh, at least in the part of the Mediterranean that was then controlled by uh, Muslims. Uh, There were, of course, the Islamic courts and there were Islamic forms of exchange, Islamic partnership uh, 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 rules that were used by long-distance traders. But there were also uh, the Jewish equivalent of these uh, uh, partnership forms. There were the Christian equivalent and the non-Muslim minorities, the Jews and Christians living under Islamic rule were perfectly free to use their own courts and to use their own uh, own uh, uh, forms of exchange and forms of contracts uh, if it so suited them. They were also free to use Islamic uh, uh, partnerships and to uh, take their disputes to the Islamic courts. At that time, uh, many non-Muslims were preferring to use the Islamic courts. They were preferring to, uh, to do long-distance trade uh, under Islamic partnerships, by forming Islamic partnerships, as opposed to Jewish uh, partnerships. Maimonides, the famous uh, Jewish philosopher uh, who lived in Islamic Spain, complains in one of his uh, books that the Jewish merchants of uh, spain were doing business in the manner of gentiles what does he mean by this uh, the gentiles uh, to whom he was uh, referring to were the uh, were the arab the muslim arabs of spain and uh, what did he mean by doing business in the manner of uh, the gentiles it meant forming islamic uh, partnerships now why were the jewish merchants when they could have formed uh, uh, Jewish partnerships and use the Jew- uh, Jewish courts, why were they uh, doing business in a different way? The reason is that the Islamic uh, uh, partnership law offered flexibilities uh, that uh, were very valuable to the merchants. Uh, Jewish partnership uh, uh, law required the financier, uh, the person who was putting up the, uh, the money, Uh, and the uh, traveling merchant, the one who actually went from Spain, let's say, to Cairo and back doing business, required them to share the profits 50-50. Whereas Islamic law gave the uh, merchants, uh, the merchant and the financier, the flexibility to set their own profit ratio. And depending on what they were going to trade in, depending on the reputation of the merchant, uh, uh depending on the risks involved for the the merchant they could set uh, uh, set change the uh, the share so evidently this was valuable enough that the uh, jewish merchants were uh, preferring the uh islamic uh, uh, to uh, conduct their uh, business according to by forming uh islamic partnerships here is evidence that the players themselves, regardless of, of whether we as economists recognize what is efficient and to what is not, the players themselves were, uh, uh, were, uh, were, uh, were, are telling us that one of these institutional forms was more efficient than, uh, than the
1: other. Uh, that's a good starting point. It, I think of transaction costs as the cost of measuring and enforcing agreements. And that sounds innocuous, but of course it's not, because by measurement, you mean that all of the, the, the attributes of an exchange uh, can be measured. And if you can't measure them, then it's very hard to make exchanges because you don't know how what the value of, of, of whatever it is you're exchanging is. So measurement and enforcement. And flexibility, of course, is one of the things that lowers measurement costs. If you have a flexibility to do things in different ways. I suppose uh, I want to ask you back then, since you're an expert on on the history of the Muslim world. I want to ask not you- not quite an expert, I'm still learning. Well, you're as much of an expert as we got in this room, friend. <laughs> okay. uh, but I want to ask you uh, how then in a Muslim world would the fact that the state enforces or creates and enforces the institutions, would that make for inefficiency or efficiency in the, in the world that you're talking about in the Muslim world? i.e. Would, would the state be interested in efficiency and in that sense try to adjust Muslim law so that you'd create institutions that would do this or not?
0: Depends on the time period. In the uh, 10th, 11th, and 12th centuries when Islamic law, classical Islamic law, what is called the Sharia, uh, evolved, uh, the uh, jurists who interpreted the Quran and the classical sources of Islam and formed uh, classical Islamic law were very sensitive to the needs of merchants. And there's a very good oh, reason for this because many of them were merchants themselves or many of them were investors. So they, the partnership law was uh, uh, developed by the Islamic jurists in the 10th, 11th, 12th centuries was the most advanced partnership law for the time because it was created by merchants. And they, all these flexibilities were introduced because uh, uh, because they had obvious uh, uh, efficiency uh, uh, implications. However, uh, the uh, Islamic law ceased to be controlled by people with an interest in commerce. Eventually, they became part of the bureaucracy and they started Uh, living off of uh, tax revenues uh, living off of arbitrary confiscations and they lost that interest and so and that is one of the factors that contributed to the stagnation of Islamic law at a time when European business law European commercial law European financial institutions were evolving becoming more efi- more efficient. Nothing was changing in the, uh, in the Middle East.
1: Well, that's very interesting and it makes for the contrast and something we, I'd like to explore further with you because one of the things when I write about the rise of the Western world, usually I start in about the 10th century and I look at the way in which beliefs were evolving in the Judeo-Christian world uh, of uh, Europe at that time and how those beliefs gradually uh, evolved into beliefs that were more congenial to uh, institutions that would encourage productivity and creativity and so on. It was a very gradual affair. You have evolved beliefs, uh, but it was a long process, for example, to go back to something that we both have been talking about, which is usury laws and things like that. It was a long process of change to move. First of all, you evaded usury laws by getting the them with various kinds of of uh, subterfuge, and then gradually, however, uh, the beliefs uh, enabled you to t- directly get institutions that, again, to go back to my transaction cost, devised institutions that lowered the costs of making exchanges in different kinds of, of settings. Uh, and that was a sort of, that's the story of the rise of the Western world, really. I mean, I, I, we, we have a lot of stories about technology and so on, but technology, in my view, is a derivative. Mm-hmm. If you get instead of institutions that encourage people will be productive and creative, then down the road you'll you'll encourage technological change, you'll encourage all the kinds of things that we see arising in the the Western world from 10th century on up to the 18th century, by which time uh, really Western Europe has come to dominate the rest of the world. Uh, Now, as you pointed out, the Muslim world up through the 12th century really was the creative part of, uh, of the world, whereas the Western world was a backward uh, part of the world. Now, somewhere around that it changes. Do you have a, a short answer or even a long answer? to What made the Muslim world stagnate or relatively stagnate as compared to the Western world?
0: There's several factors, I think, that played an important role. Since you brought in the uh, matter of the evolution of beliefs in uh, Western Europe, which I I agree with you, this was a very important uh, uh, process, critical process. Uh, Let me start with the beliefs. Uh, Usually laws existed in Islam, they existed in Judaism, they existed in uh, Christian Europe. Uh, In each of these contexts, uh, people evaded them. there are many other rules that were associated, at least in the Middle Eastern context, associated with the, uh, with the uh, uh, that, were, uh, that were associated with the religion. One difference between the Middle East or the Islamic Middle East and Europe is that many more rules that have something to do with economics, something important to do with economics were anchored in the Quran or anchored in very early Islamic traditions. Now, why uh, does that make a difference? Because if something is clearly stated in a holy book, a book that is treated as God's word, it is much harder to challenge that because to challenge it to say we ought to change it immediately subjects one to the charge of heresy and it can end one's career and much, much, much worse. And of course, there are examples uh, uh, of this. In the uh, economic sphere, I'll just give one example uh, Islamic uh, inheritance laws are stated in the Quran, stated very specifically that an individual's testamentary rights are reserved to one third of his or her estate, two thirds of the person's estate are to be. Uh, uh, divided according to a complex set of formula among all members of the extended family, not just the nuclear family but the cousins and uncles and grandparents and uh, grandchildren and so on. Now it's often been remarked uh, that uh, this prevented the uh, uh, this uh, served an equalizing role. I think that it uh, a more important uh, role that it played was in preventing the accumulation of, uh, of capital we never saw the rise of an aristocracy in uh, uh, in the Middle East, and uh, uh, as we did in uh, in Europe. Uh, and uh, it was uh, whereas in Europe, because the inheritance laws, even though the Church had a lot to say about the inheritance laws, because the inheritance laws were not anchored in the Bible. It was much easier to reinterpret those inheritance laws in many different ways. So you got pr- primogeniture in certain places. You got, you got a bewildering array of inheritance laws, and there was a great deal of experimentation. This never happened in the uh, in the Islamic world. So that's I've given a couple of uh, given you a couple of factors. Yeah. Uh,
1: let's uh, move up to date then, since uh, yes. we've been sneaking up on coming up to yes. date. Uh, because when we get up to the modern world, uh, it's true that what we, the story we, you and I tell when we teach economic history about the Western world is that you evolved a set of institutions that encourage technological change, that encourage the, the development of human capital, all the things that now we know are the keys to, to really high income uh, parts of the world. Uh, and it has been and still is in the Western world uh, a, a give and take between beliefs uh, and institutions, and we don't always get it right. I mean, I want to, uh, in fact, uh, uh, one of the things that clearly is, is is a major part of telling the story in modern times is the fact that the institutional structure in lots of parts of the world, not just the Islamic world, but in lots of parts, like in Sub-Saharan Africa, you have sets of institutions that don't produce any development at all. Uh, And I guess that raises the question that you've given a a historical reason why the Muslim world stagnates after 1200. Uh, How do we get out of a problem like that? How do we we create institutions therefore that are gonna shift you from stagnation to development? Do you wanna wanna tell me that about the Muslim or any part of the world you'd like to talk about?
0: Well, I'll stick with the Middle East since we uh, now have uh, Stated some of the uh, the background this process actually has begun it's a very difficult uh, process in the uh, 19th century uh, the uh, uh, Muslim merchants in the Middle East starting in Istanbul and Cairo and Alexandria uh, uh, managed to uh, lobby successfully for the establishment of secular commercial courts One rarely reads about this in histories of the uh, the Middle East, uh, of the modern Middle East. Yet I think this was an enormously important step. Establishing a secular commercial court in Istanbul meant that Islamic, meant that the jurisdiction of the Islamic courts was being narrowed, that commerce and eventually finance was taken out of the jurisdiction of the Islamic uh, courts. It's very significant that the uh, drive to do this came from Muslim merchants because they were the ones who had to, uh, uh, who, uh, uh, for whom the alternative was using a legal system that was simply not suited to uh, the, uh, the modern age. Now, they tried to do this, and this, uh, this led to further steps, uh, uh, further efforts at westernization, uh, Western style courts were, have been established all across the, uh, the Middle East. And the Middle East is certainly more advanced and economically more efficient than it was in the 19th uh, century. But this is a long process. Uh, one can import technologies, as you've uh, noted in your works uh, uh, on numerous occasions, numerous contexts. Uh, it's one can Uh, One can transfer technology from one society, from a very developed society, to the least developed society. You can build a fabulous factory uh, in the middle of the Sahara Desert, uh, in the least developed part of of Africa, but uh, carrying the culture that goes with it, the norms, the trust, uh, the shared understandings, this is very difficult and this is a very slow process that I think is gonna take uh, some more uh, generations. Good,
1: well that gets us really, uh, we, we really haven't uh, defined what we mean by institutions and mm-hmm. you've just done it, uh, you snuck it in on me because obviously in institutions are not only formal rules of the game, which we've talked about like court systems and uh, constitutional law and statute law and common law and regulations. There are also informal norms of behavior which Uh, in my view, are as important as the formal rules of the game. Uh, That is, if you have formal rules of the game, they can specify all kinds of things, but if they're not backed up by informal norms that complement those in ways, then the rules don't work at all, and usually you can't get enforcement of the rules because, in fact, they run counter. to And So that if we have, then, a proper institutional framework that's going to create an environment that's going to... create economic growth and productivity and so on. It's gotta be both. Uh, Now, uh, you can get a formal law just by having some political entity that can do that, create a rule, create a rule, but we, we know that's not sufficient. For example, some of the work I'm in the midst of doing now is I'm doing a study comparing Latin American and North American economic growth over the last four centuries. And one of the things that happened in the early 19th century is that Latin American countries, when they became independent, they adopted something like the US Constitution in the view that this would produce uh, an environment like the United States and conducive to growth. Well, you know that the result was radically different. Uh, and the reason why was is you had, a, you had the same rules on the books, but the enforcement and the complementary norms were very different. And the result is that the formal laws didn't work at all like that. So one of the things therefore we're really very interested in is the informal norms how they evolve and how you create a set of informal norms, if you can create them, yeah. that will get you to uh, complement really uh, formal rules that work well. You yes. want to uh, try that one on? Well, uh, I
0: I do, and I also want to make sure mm-hmm. we get to the uh, issue of ideology, the related issue of ideology on which you've had uh, some very important uh, things to mm-hmm. say. I don't think anybody has uh, uh, an easy answer to the question of how we transfer informal norms from one country to another. One thing that helps is intellectual openness Mm. and uh, openness to mobility across uh, societies. Uh, In uh, uh, Europe, Uh, Right now, there's a great deal of mobility across societies. They're completely free to read each other's literature, to travel to each other's uh, countries. uh, uh, And uh, this leads to a rapid diffusion. And it it also has the positive consequence of weeding out uh, inefficient uh, norms, or norms that uh, hinder creativity and uh, that lower uh, productivity. In the Middle East, certainly in, uh, and to a much greater degree in parts of Africa, uh, this mobility is uh, reduced, first of all, by poverty. People who are living at subsistence can't, uh, don't have the luxury to travel around the world to see uh, how uh, other people are uh, living, how other people are uh, doing uh, business, but also by uh, efforts Uh, uh, on the part of repressive regimes to uh, keep information about other societies out, uh, at least information that would uh, upset existing uh, arrangements. Uh, I believe that this is going to be less of a problem in the 21st century because of the Internet Revolution. Uh, some of the countries of the Middle East and North Africa, Tunisia is one example. Saudi Arabia is another example. Uh, they have tried, uh, and they're still trying, at least in Saudi Arabia's case, to uh, monitor the internet. Saudi Arabia, it is said, has 10,000 people working on blocking mm-hmm. new websites as they mm-hmm. come up, and apparently it's a losing battle and, uh, there. And their ways that their citizens can uh, uh, can. Uh, pick up whatever information they want through servers in other uh, countries. I think uh, pretty soon they will realize that they have lost the, the battle, and whether it's China or Saudi Arabia or a, any other uh, repressive uh, regime, uh, news will, uh, information will start uh, uh, filtering it. Let me ask uh, uh, a question that we sort of uh, uh, raise an issue that we have uh, uh, touched on, but not addressed uh, directly. Uh, one of the major contributions you've made to economics, and indeed to the social sciences, in the last uh, uh, 20 years uh, is, uh, uh, to, uh, is to bring up and show the importance of ideology in, uh, uh, as a factor the economic success or economic failure of uh, civilizations. Uh, many uh, economists, many members of our profession, and many other social scientists as well, are inclined to treat ideology as part of the superstructure. And what they mean by this is that it is just a reflection, ideology is just a reflection of the structures of society, the power relations, the, uh, the uh, distribution of income, that is what we ought to be studying and uh, not ideology, which is just an effect of uh, that. I wonder if you'd comment uh, on that and give us an example of where ideology uh, does
1: matter. Well, that takes me in a long, uh, a, a long foray here, uh, Curran, uh, Timur. Uh, uh, when I first started to get involved in looking at institutions, I had to ask where they come from. And if you ask where they come from, uh, you eventually trace back to they come from the way it, the beliefs people have. And so that gets you to say, well, where do beliefs come from? And that gets us, I, I hate to get into it, but into cognitive science because beliefs come from the way in which the mind interprets what's going on in whatever we would think of as the real world. Now, if you take a physicist and say, well, where did your theory come from, the physicist can can get down to fundamentals like quarks or uh, some basic uh, entity that exists in the physical world and build your theory up from the bottom up. You can do the same in chemistry and you can do the same in in biology and in genetics. Uh, Now, we don't have any innate fundamental in the social sciences. There isn't any reality out there when I ask you what is the structure of a society? Uh, What there is is there's a construct that we evolve in our mind that is the way in which we interpret what's going on. And even the best theory in the social sciences is a story. It's a construct that hopefully, if we've done it right, mirrors enough of what's going on in 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 the, quote, the real world so that if we get it right, then when we act on the basis of the theory, we get results that are consistent with what we intended them to be. So there's an identity then between beliefs and actions and outcomes. Uh, and that, of course, that, that's true in the physical sciences. Yeah. In the physical sciences, you go into the lab and you, on the basis of a theory, you uh, put together experiments and then presumably the outcome is something you can measure. Uh, well, our problem in the social sciences is that it's a construct always, and the only identification is between, as I said, the, the beliefs producing outcomes that are intended. Now, uh, human beings ever since the beginning of time have tried to understand the world around them and therefore, whether they use witchcraft or dogmas or or astrology uh, throughout history, they've always constructed views about the world. And that's fine, uh, and we all do it, uh, and we've been doing it ever since the beginning of time. The question is how good are are those uh, beliefs, or in this case, ideologies are organized belief systems. Uh, How good are they in terms of being tools by which to understand and and create institutions? Because beliefs produce institutions, which in turn then produce certain kinds of outcomes.
0: And sometimes those uh, beliefs are terribly flawed. One example from the past century uh, is uh, the beliefs that undergirded the socialist uh, system, uh, and specifically communi- the communist system that was based on central planning. Yeah, good, the well people, yeah.
1: Let, let me pick up, because it so happens I'm writing a chapter in the book I'm writing on the process of change, which is the rise and fall of the Soviet Union. And it goes in the following sequence. You have Marx and Engels that create a belief system, Marxism, which, and the belief system in turn, uh, energized Lenin when he came to to, to power to implement that. And he implemented it by using that set of beliefs to create a set of institutions, once he got into power in communist Russia in the 1920s, to create a whole new society. The institutions, some of them worked very well, like uh, those creating heavy industry and so on. Some of them didn't work very well like agriculture. But nevertheless, overall, in the period that we're talking about, by the time uh, we get to the 1950s and 60s, the Soviet Union has become a superpower, like the United States. So here you had a belief system that created institutions that produced a set of results that transformed the world in the 20th century. Now, that's fine, but beginning in the the old, probably in the mid-1970s, productivity and growth slows down in the Soviet Union. And as it slows down, then presumably, What you're doing isn't working. And so if you have an ideal world where you have perfect relationship between beliefs and then feedback if they don't work, then if they don't work, you adjust the beliefs and if the world stayed constant, you'd eventually get it right, in the sense you'd evolve a set of beliefs that worked because the world was staying constant. But of course, the world doesn't stay constant, it keeps evolving too. But what happened in the Soviet Union by the mid 70s is that the kind of beliefs that evolved, uh, you didn't get much feedback why is something we want to explore which is why ideologies are tend to be inflexible at some point in time and you implied that by your story about the muslim world from the 12th century on Uh, because uh, eventually in the in the communist world it led to a grinding to a halt of all productivity growth and a stagnation and then the end of the soviet union the most extraordinary story in history because it's probably the only time in history we ever had an empire which Uh, fell without uh, external uh, forces uh, doing anything to to directly create its uh, collapse.
0: Let me add one thing to this uh, feedback process uh, that you mentioned. Of course, it was very distorted. It was an imperfect process. One thing that contributed to the distortion was that people were afraid to speak their minds. Many people could see that... Uh, something was wrong with uh, somewhere. Everybody had to stand in queues for everything from meat to shoes and the quality of what they got when they uh, ultimately reached the uh, front of the queue was uh, was very uh, uh, poor. But they were not free to they were free to uh to grumble about this they were not free to speculate about what in the system in the soviet system uh, what in the communist system might be uh, the cause they could find fault (laughs) with uh, factory managers with uh, incompetent clerks who hadn't processed the orders right Uh, incompetent uh, truck drivers who hadn't brought the merchandise in on time, but they were not free to ask fundamental questions of the sort that we have been asking today. Are our institutions uh, uh, keeping uh, transactions costs to uh, Mm -hmm. a minimum? Are they solving coordination uh, problems? Are they creating incentives for uh, Rent-seeking for uh, for corruption, uh, which uh, needn't be the case if we change the uh, the institutions. And uh, the more people decided to keep quiet, or decided to pay lip service to uh, the uh, to communist uh, principles, the harder it became for others to uh, to do this.
1: Yeah, well, you've done and a lot of interesting work, and in fact. What you've done along these lines, I think, has opened all of our eyes to the difference between repressed views that lie underneath the surface and then only emerge in particular content and therefore produce very rapid change at certain moments in history. Is that true anymore, though, If, if particularly your, your illustration about the Internet and the failure to be able to use to pre- prevent information? Are we going to get more rapid change and more uh, optimistic uh, shift of institutions to become more efficient because... Uh, uh, information costs have fallen so much? Possibly. News can travel
0: very fast all across the world through the Internet. And it is possible that if uh, some of the uh, Middle Eastern autocracies start falling through the benefit of the Internet, uh, the news could spread and we could uh, see a process similar mm. to that in Eastern Europe, except much faster. But there is a problem, and that is... Uh, Even though uh, the internet is now uh, available uh, pretty much everywhere in the world, the amount of information on the internet is growing exponentially. And just as the existence of information in a good university library doesn't imply that it will ever be used, the uh, existence of an internet site that points to uh, w- ways that one can do, uh, one can manage a society better, that points to better institutions doesn't mean that that is going to be, that is necessarily going to be uh, discovered or that, or that people will necessarily want to discover that because uh, what people want, what information people want to have access uh, to is a function of the beliefs that they have uh, uh, at any given time.
1: Well, let me wind so, it up then, Timur, by asking you the $64,000 question, which is, we know the kind of institutions that produce pr- productivity, growth, so at least in, the moder- in today's world. It may not be tomorrow's world, but today's yeah. world. Uh, what I don't think we know is how to get there. Yeah. How we get, let's say, in sub-Saharan Africa, how we get societies that are completely falling apart and productivity is still growing down, how do we get them to... Uh, to develop, and now, if if, it, if information, if the lowering cost of information is not a sufficient reason, what can we do, or what what brief advice do we have to give to failing economies, or economies that aren't working well, to get them to uh, do better?
0: As you said, it's a sixty-four thousand dollar question. Uh, I might have said a sixty-four million dollar question. It's a it's a, it's a difficult. Uh, Uh, One, uh, I think uh, an absolutely important measure, critical measure would be to open up these societies. You have uh, uh, societies that are uh, in sub-Saharan Africa that are terribly inefficient, that are highly protected, highly protected against their neighbors. There's practically no trade between African uh, uh, countries. uh, And uh, I think they have uh, great deal to gain from opening themselves up uh, to trade. Uh, They're afraid of being uh, colonized, Uh, they're afraid of uh, people from uh, the outside world uh, out-competing
1: domestics, but I don't see how they could do any worse than they're doing uh, right now. You've taken me back to where I think, in my view, we should end, which is beliefs again. And if it's beliefs, then what we really need to know, I'm putting my favorite hobby horse into it, is how human beings learn and why they learn what they do, how flexible they are in when they've had some set of beliefs, changing that set of beliefs uh, and adjusting to, and I don't think we know a lot about that. That's the frontier of cognitive science. It's where I'm working these days. But I have to say that as of now, uh, we are just beginning. I think we're going to get somewhere. Along the lines you've suggested, ways by which we're going to force people to change their views and be able to adapt to things that have been outside of their purview. Uh, I hope that's where we're going, because if it is, why uh, there's hope for human beings.
0: Well, you're leading the way, and I'm looking forward to your book. Uh, and Maybe the answer to the $64,000 question will be there. Thank you. I've enjoyed this. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.